following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good to see you this morning. Good to see a few of our people coming back to Thailand. So wonderful. And in these days, it's quite miraculous uh, to come back here from a foreign country. Uh, it's, it's right up there with, I think, the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, so we're celebrating with those who are here. Uh, we'll be looking this morning in, uh, in Acts, in Matthew, chapter 18. And so let, uh, let's begin uh, by reading. Uh, and we're going to actually read from verses 1 through 20. And the reason is that this uh, is really a teaching that Jesus gave uh, all at one shot. And even though we've broken up in, it up into pieces... Um, it's, uh, it's really one unit, so to help keep the continuity, we want to read uh, beginning in verse 1. So let's look at uh, Matthew 18, 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you not despise the, uh, one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he, rebu- if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them 
by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Um, This uh, chapter 18 uh, is the fourth of what's called a discourse section or a teaching section in the book of Matthew. And Matthew mixes up Jesus' teaching with uh, his miracles and his activities. And there's actually five of these, and this is number four. Um, And the focus of this particular teaching is uh, the community of faith, right? who they were going to be together as followers of Christ. And Jesus has this picture, this vision, that Jesus Christ's followers would uh, not go off and follow Jesus alone as a solitary, lonely venture, but they would come together as a community, It's a group of people committed together to following Christ. Uh, And so in this passage, he's really teaching about some things about the nature or kind of community that that this group of people, this group who have come into the kingdom, will be like. And he's he's clear that this, uh, the characteristics or the, the way that these people interact and have relationship is to be very different than what they experience in the world, or even in Judaism. Uh, when we think about church, uh, what, what does it mean? What like, what is for you, what is the role or place the church fills in your life? Uh, how do you think about it? Um, and, and I don't mean just kind of big picture, but like, think about everyday life. Like, does church have anything to do with your everyday, day-by-day existence? Uh, is it, is it really uh, really part of how you live life? Um, not to, and, and not just what we think church should be, but what it really is. Like, we probably all have the right answers about church. Um, oh, yeah, the church is a community of believers. But is that really how you experience it in everyday life? Like, is, uh, would you say, oh, yeah, to me, you know, the church family really is a family that's part of my everyday life and existence. I think, I think that if we're honest, uh, for many of us, uh, the church is often not much more than just a weekly meeting, right? And of course, we can, we can speak of these lofty things about the universal church. And uh, it's true that we're all part of the universal church no matter where we are. But... Um, but practically speaking, what does that really mean, right? And I think for a lot of us, uh, our experience of church really is just a weekly event we show up for where we worship and are encouraged in the Word. And um, as pastor and as a gathering people doing that right now, I'm not saying that's all bad. Like, like I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to diss this meeting. Uh, I think it's important, and uh, I think God loves it when we meet. But is that, is that all Jesus meant, like he's just saying, yeah, you know, it's like it's cool if you guys could like all gather once a week for an hour or so, and and you know that's that's the community, right? Or did Jesus picture something more? Well, obviously, I think he pictures something more. Um, uh, so so what is it? What is he talking about? Well, uh, as he as we looked last week, what he envisions this picture envisions this community being is a place where we relate to each other in a very different order than how the world does. And so in verses 1 through 4, we looked last week, uh, that it's a community where we relate to each other without any status or rank or hierarchy. Right? And that goes from the pastor and the elders all the way down to uh, little kids in Sunday school, 
Uh, Jesus says you need to humble yourself. You need to take the status or rank of a child. And not only that, but we welcome each other as children. And so it's this amazing picture that it's a community where the gospel is a great equalizer and uh, where the ground at the foot of the cross truly is level. And we, uh, we, don't, we don't have hierarchy. We don't have status. We don't have rank. Right? We all humble ourselves, and we are all like little children. And throughout the rest of this passage, Jesus addresses this community as the little ones, the little children. Right? And so... Um, that's different. Like that's very different from the way the world uh, is in community, where status is everything, and where we're constantly trying to upgrade our rank and show that we're somehow better than everybody else. But that's not to be the way it is in the community of faith. We are to relate to one another uh, on a very equal level footing. As we said last week, that doesn't mean there's not such a thing as leadership, but even leaders. Uh, don't have more rank or status. They just have a different job, right? But they're not more important. They're not elevated, right? We, we all uh, really are on equal footing and equal ground. Um, and so, so part of the nature of this community is that we have these very distinct relationships where we come to know each other uh, really as brothers and sisters. Right? So that's the word that's used throughout this Passage talks about the brothers, and in that time, brother included sisters, right? So it means the brothers and sisters, those family relationships. And so community is very much about relationship with other people who we consider family and who we are on an equal footing with. Um, but uh, as we go through the rest of this chapter, this teaching, uh, the, it's still about community, but the focus shifts a little bit. It's a little more focused on dealing specifically with sin that creeps into this community um, and at different levels and in different ways. And so every single section from here on is somehow dealing with sin as it, as it comes into the community. Um, and we are all little ones. We are all prone to wander. So I call it wandering sheep, right? We are all prone to wander. Uh, we are all tempted, and sin could be a problem for any of us. And that's part of the equalizing thing we talked about last week, right? We're all equal because we're all equally prone to stumble and fall into sin. Nobody is so spiritual that sin just bounces off of them, right? We all wrestle with it, right? So, so what do we do? How do we deal with sin when it starts to creep into the community? And uh, for people who came, like Jesus' disciples, who were in a very structured very hierarchical system of Judaism where there were priests, right? There was a high priest and there were Levites and they were, they were set apart with a different role and, and a lot of their role had to do with dealing with sin and error, right? There was a very special class of people whose job was to decide what was right and wrong and to essentially judge uh, the rest of the people to see if they were following what was right and wrong. And so uh, it would be tempting to think, well, in the church, we need this special class of people. We need this set-aside group, these priests, if you will, who are given with the task of policing the rest of us. And uh, oftentimes that is how it works in the church, right? We've got the church police, whether it's the pastor or the elders or just this group of little old ladies who uh, just watch how everybody else is living. Is that how it works, right? 
Is there a need for that? Um, well, Jesus' answer to the question is actually quite startling and is quite radical. It's quite really counterculture to the way the world works. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure it's one that we always practice very well. Or maybe we don't even understand. But here's the short answer, and then we'll unpack it. But here's, here's kind of my thesis, or what I think Jesus is arguing here. He is saying, in the community of faith, it is the responsibility of every single person, every single person, to confront and deal with the sin that creeps into the community. Certainly in their own life, but also in the lives of others they are in relationship with. Right? So um, there's not a special class, but it's actually the responsibility of every single believer to be uh, living in accountable relationships with other believers and uh, where we confront sin in each other's lives. Okay, now this just sounds like I can people, people are just thinking through this, how this is going to work, right? So hold with me. Let's look at it. Let's see what Jesus uh, says in this passage and see how this, uh, I think Jesus pictured this working in his church. Uh, and, and the question is there, who's responsible for who, Right? Well, as it turns out, uh, I think Jesus is saying here that actually I am my brother's keeper. Remember way back with Cain and Abel? He says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Well, actually, in, the, in this community, I am my brother's keeper. So he says in verse 6, uh, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Uh, First, and we're going to talk about uh, four ways that we are to be looking out for each other, right? That we are to be dealing with sin in each other's lives in the community. And the first one is to be careful that we don't cause uh, others to fall. We don't cause others to stumble into sin, right? And, and he takes it very seriously. And he says in verse uh, 7, uh, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Uh, for it is necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the ones by whom the temptation comes. Right? This is part of life. And sin is going to creep into our community. It is going to creep into our lives. And getting saved doesn't make us absolutely free from sin. But Jesus warns here uh, that, that we must be very careful that we're not the cause of someone else sinning. Right? Uh, uh, and, and we could do that a couple of ways. I'm not going to go into this at great depth. Uh, but but um, you know, we can cause others to sin by our mistreatment of them, right? by the way we deal with them. So if we're, uh, if we're trying to get rank and status, right? we're living in this community trying to elevate ourselves above others, and our pride is causing us to think we're better than others. And to put ourselves over others, right? The way we treat them may be uh, dishonoring, may be disrespectful, it may be looking down on them. Um, and, and it may cause them to feel uh, this urge to compete with us. And that's what happens when we elevate ourselves, right? When we put ourselves up against others and we compare ourselves against others, we, we start having this spirit of competition where I want to show, prove that I'm better. My ministry is better. I pray more, right? I know more about the Bible, right? You know, I read it through a whole, in a whole year. Did you read it through all this year, right? All these different ways that we can measure each other up, right? 
Um, and so that can cause others to sin by discouraging them or by causing them to get in the same spirit of rivalry or strife or division or conflict or competition, right? Um, we can, can use selfish or careless words that hurt others or, or just discourage them or cause them even to give up their faith or to push them out of the community, right? I don't want to be a part of that group. They're mean to me, and they say hurtful things to me, right? Um, or by unloving actions that would wound and discourage others. Right? Those are all things that could cause others to sin. But it's also true that we can cause others to sin simply by our bad example. By our bad example. When I was a kid, I think I was probably in fifth or sixth grade, and we had uh, this really fun pastor at our church. And part of the re- reason he was so fun is that he had been a police officer before he became a pastor. And so he had lots of good stories about dealing with bad guys. And as a boy, I was like all over this, his stories about bad guys and all that kind of stuff and uh, his adventures. And uh, I remember several times riding with him. And if you, if, you, if you have family members that are police, I have a son-in-law who's a cop. They're terrible drivers, right? Uh, and they, they kind of have a license to t- push things way beyond the limits because they're actually trained to do it, and it's really part of their job. Well, this pastor drove like he was still a cop, right? Only without the lights on his car. And he would do the craziest things. I just thought it was so cool. And then we're thinking, when I, drive, when I grow up, I'm going to drive like him, right? Because uh, obviously Christians don't need to follow the traffic laws. My pastor doesn't, right? And, and see, he was setting a very bad example. Thankfully, I was only about 10 at the time and not actually driving, uh, so that was a good thing. But, you know, how is our example, how is the way we living, uh, are, are we doing things that's giving someone else permission to do, to sin, right? So we have to be very careful. And, and Jesus uses very strong language here. He says it's better to go into the middle of the ocean with a uh, millstone necklace and drop yourself off and drown in the sea. Like, that's really hard words. Probably politically incorrect at some level in our modern world. Um, but Jesus is, is making the point here that this is serious. This is not a minor thing. Like, we have got to be super careful in the church that we're not, that our life, our conduct, our behavior is not the cause of someone else sinning. It's a serious warning. Yeah, better you go out with a big rock around your neck and dive in the, in the ocean. This is serious, right? This is serious. Don't do this, right? And so, second thing he says in relation to this is, is you need to get rid of sin in your life. Make sure you are not a bad example because you're not dealing seriously with sin in your life. So in verse 8 he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled, that is eternal life, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into, thrown into the eternal fire. Right Again, Jesus is using really extreme language here, and he's not expecting us to do this literally. If this was true... Uh, Christians would all be handless, eyeless, blind people, right? Because, uh, but he's making a point here that we must deal aggressively and seriously with sin. Like it is not okay to just say, well, you know, uh, God's gracious and I, I know he's just going to forgive and it's just the way I am. 
Well, yes, it's true. It is the way you are because you're a fallen, sinful human being. But it's not how it's not okay to stay that way. It is okay to be that way. But God says we need to deal seriously with sin in our life. And we don't deal with it in our own strength or our own power. Right? We deal with it through what, what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus has broken the power of sin. My life has been crucified with Christ. Right? I have died with him. And in dying with him, I have died to the power of sin. So, so Paul says in Romans, Therefore I need to put to death the deeds of the flesh right? through, through the power of the Spirit. Right? We need God's help, and God promises his help to do this. But we must uh, never be casual about sin in our own life. Um, and the reason is not just because it's a, a problem in my own life. He's not just making the point here that you need to deal with sin because it's going to wreck your life. What he's saying here is you need to deal with sin because it will wreck the community. Right? You are having influence with people around you. And it's not just a personal problem. It's not just about you. Right? You are having influence with children and, and your, your spouse and neighbors and friends and other people in the community. Right? So we've got to be serious about dealing with sin in our life because it's the first step to dealing with sin in the community of faith. Right? Um, second uh, way that he talks to us about um, uh, our dealing with sin is, is that uh, uh, everyone essentially is called to do the work of a shepherd. Right? And, and we have in, in the church structure, we have leaders, we have pastors, we have elders, and we call them shepherds, and it's true they are. And uh, as a pastor and as our elders, we are given the responsibility of shepherding the, the whole flock. Right? So kind of our view is to be looking out for the, the health of the whole community. Right? Uh, but uh, we, we, we oftentimes think that, well, the shepherding is the job of pastors and elders, not, not the job of the sheep. But remember, the whole context of this passage is that we are all little children. Right? There's no such thing as an elite class of people who are, 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 are the, the church police, right? the elders. Right? And Jesus is saying that we all have a responsibility to shepherd each other. So he talks about this in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Uh, Jesus starts off by saying, don't despise uh, basically the wanderer. He's talking here in this section about lost sheep, about those who wander away from the flock or the community. Uh, so he's talking here about the person who wanders into sin. Right? They, they, they have sinned. They have fallen. Uh, they are walking down a path that's taking them away from God, and away from uh, that relation, they're not dealing, they're not cutting off their hand, they're not dealing with sin seriously in their life, right? And, and so it, it would be tempting to think, well, I'm working really hard dealing with sin in my life. I'm cutting off those hands and feet. I'm, 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 I'm making sure that I'm walking in holiness. Look at me. 
you all just look at me. This is the picture of holiness right here. And it's pretty easy to start thinking, I've got this down. And we hear of people who fall into sin and we go, oh, um, can you believe that? Did you hear about that pastor who just had an affair? Boy, I'm so glad I am not like that, right? I am so much better than those sinners. right? And we, we look down on them, right? Uh, and, and it's not that we shouldn't be grieved by sin, right? We should be. But being grieved by sin is not the same as feeling superior, morally superior, better than those who fall. Like when I hear people fall, you know what I say? I, honestly, I say this. I say, praise God, that was not me. Because it could have been, right? It could have been me. I am not exempt. Like I am not so far out there that that could not happen to me. Right? That, that should be our heart and our attitude. Do not despise them. Don't look down on them. Instead, we are to have the same concern for lost sheep that, that, that God has for them. Like when one of those little ones wanders off into sin, uh, uh, what is God's attitude? Well, he says, he says that, uh, he says, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is really a difficult verse. Uh, what does Jesus mean here when he says that their angels are before God's face? Uh, well, some people take this to mean, and it could mean, that we all have a guardian angel. We all have our own uh, specially assigned angel who looks after us. The problem with that is that nowhere else in Scripture does it give any indication that this is how it works, right? Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't. It just means that this would be the only instance that kind of points at this idea of a guardian angel. Now, it could be true. We could all have our own private angel, and some of them have a lot more work cut out than, than others, I'm sure. And, and maybe they're up there before God representing us in some way. Um, uh, scripture does talk about angels over groups and over nations. So it could be that uh, one angel is in charge of, like maybe there's a CCF angel. And certainly in Revelation 3, we kind of see some hints of that. And so maybe there's one angel assigned to us as a group. I don't know. Uh, there's also the possibility that angels re- really represents our spirits before God. And there are cases in Scripture where when people die, their spirit goes before God and they are referred to as angels. Right? So it's this idea that our spiritual being is in God's presence. Uh, I'll let you pick. You could pick A, B, or C. I don't really care. Uh, the, the point is this. In some way, we are represented before God in a very real and personal way. There's some represent, whether it's a physical real angel or somehow us spiritually, we are all, as God's children, before the very face and presence of God. And because we are before God's face and in his presence, he is constantly aware of us. Right? He is constantly aware of us. And he is watching and he is concerned and he is looking at every single one of our lives. But there's never a day or an hour or a second that goes by that God goes, oh, you know, I forgot all about Tim. What happened to him? Right? That never happens. Because we are constantly in his vision and in his eyes and his sight, right? And, and, and that is so because he is continually concerned about us. So when we start wandering off, 
right? It's a concern for him. He's concerned about every single little one. And he, uh, Jesus gives this parable of, of a sheep. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he say, eh, well, you know, I still got 99, so I lost one. Not probably worth the trouble to go find it. I'll just stick with my 99, right? Is that what it says? No, right? He says, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and just one of them wanders off, Right? He will secure the 99. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about them, by the way. And probably the picture is this, that it's nighttime, and he's putting the sheep into a, a, a stone a pen, and it talks about being on the mountain. So it's at the season where they're up on the mountains grazing the sheep. And it's at night, so he's putting the sheep into the stone pen, and he's counting them one by one. One, two, three. Maybe this is where you know, counting sheep to fall asleep comes from, because maybe by the time he gets to 100, he's already fallen asleep. I don't know. But he's counting them. And he comes up, and the last one goes through, 99. <gasps> he's lost one. Right? Maybe he just realizes that he's missing one. And, and so he secures the sheep there in the pen where they're safe, and maybe there's other shepherds there helping watch them. And he goes to find the lost one. Right, he searches everywhere, high and low, where they've been, trying to find, and he's worried. Right? He's concerned for that one sheep. Right? Uh, any of you who are parents, have you ever lost children? I've lost several, I, I must say. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a terrifying thing when you discover one, two, three. Uh, didn't we have four? Like, where's that fourth one? Ah! <laughs> Right, and uh, it's 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 frightening, and I and I just remember this panic feeling. What, where are they? And searching frantically, and he says he says um, if he finds it, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety nine that went astray. Again, it doesn't mean that he's not celebrating the ninety nine, but but there's this relief when you find that child. And I remember finding. Finding my children who I thought I had lost, and there's this relief. Praise God, they are safe and okay. And in that moment, you do rejoice over more with that one child. And then you spank them and beat them and scold them for wandering off, right? But but that moment, right, uh, you you rejoice. Wow, I'm, I'm praise God, you're okay, right? Is God's heart as a shepherd any less? Absolutely not, right? He he is so concerned, and when one wanders off, he is concerned to find that sheep and, and, and if possible, bring it back, to restore it to right relationship in the community. Um, so, so it's not in, in this passage. It's definitely about about God. It's about Him as the great Shepherd who's shepherding His sheep. But He's implying here um, that that in the community of faith. We are all given the responsibility of shepherding each other. Right? We are all to have that shepherd's heart for each other. And when, one, when we're aware of somebody who's, who's wandering off, who's stepping into sin, who's starting down a road that is going to be damaging, damaging and destructive, who's going, that's going to lead them away from Christ and away from the body, right? Uh, we don't go, well, you know, there's still a whole church full of people. <laughs> there's still all kinds of people here. I don't have to worry about that one, right? No, right? God is deeply concerned about every sheep, and so we should also be. 
Um, uh, we can never say, and here's the thing, we can never say, it's not my problem. Right? The temptation is to think, well, that's the pastor's job. I remember several years ago, there was a couple in our church, I won't name them, and hopefully you don't know them, but um, as it turns out, they, they left, they went back to the States, and after they were gone, uh, I found out somebody was really angry at me and the other elders because we did not intervene in, in this, with this couple because they were, there was a, a, an affair going on. There was immorality going on. And they were angry that we didn't do something about it. Right? Well, for one, uh, nobody ever told me. I, I didn't know. Nobody mentioned, oh, by the way, do you know that there's this problem going on? Um, but second of all, uh, the person who knew is responsible, right? That's the point Jesus is making here. They have a responsibility. You don't just pass it off to the church leadership, right? That's not how this community works. We are a community of people in accountable relationships with each other, right? And this ought to, this ought to make it a bit frightening, right? Like you can avoid the pastor, that's not hard. It's, hard. it's not hard to keep things a secret from, from the church leadership. But what happens if I have to keep my whole life secret from the whole community? It's a lot harder, right? And that's what Jesus envisions here, a kind of community where we have these kind of relationships where we care about each other and we know about each other and we're involved in each other's lives so that when people start wandering off, we, we, we become concerned for them. And, and we seek to shepherd them back into the flock and to care for them and to not just let them wander off into sin and destroy their life without uh, stepping in and, and being part of bringing them back into right relationship with Christ and with the, the community. So how do we do this? Well, the next section actually tells us how we do this, right? Uh, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. Okay, now here's a good one for, I think we should all have this t-shirt, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Or, or we could put it this way. If you sin against me, I'm going to talk to you about it, right? What if that was, a, if we knew this is how our relationships were going to work in the body of Christ. Like if you, if you do something against me, I'm going to talk to you about it. Because now there's a way to do this. And, and of course, Jesus doesn't unpack all of this. And this is not a comprehensive uh, teaching on everything about church discipline or about how we deal with the sin. Um, but remember, he's already talked about us being humble like children. So when I say I'm going to talk to you about it, it's not I'm going to talk to you about it like dad to a little, little kid. No, I'm also a child. Right, so there is to be a spirit of, of incredible humility in these relationships. So when I'm going to talk to you about sin, I'm going to do it with a spirit of humility, of, of, a, of an honesty of my own weakness and brokenness. And we're going to see some of this next week when we look at the next parable about uh, the unforgiving servant. Right, we'll see some of the spirit of this. Uh, but, but, but here, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's interesting in, the first, in these verses, uh, the you here is singular. Jesus is not saying you plural, like you as a group, but he's really speaking to us each individually. And so every little child, every member of the church, he's saying, if you personally and individually, uh, um, if somebody sins against you, you are responsible to go talk to that person. And it's actually a command. Right? He doesn't say, if you feel up to it. <laughs> no, he says, you must go talk to them. Right? Because this is how the community works. You must do something about it. And he says, you are to, uh, uh, in, the, in the ESV it says, you are to tell him his fault. The Greek word literally could mean, you are to expose his sin. Right? You are to rebuke or to point out, call out um, their error. Um, and again, the idea here is that we are all accountable to each other as members of the community of faith. Right? We all live in relationships where there is to be a level of accountability. We have to give an answer for our actions to those we are in relationship with. Um, uh, when somebody hurts us, and we'll talk in a minute about what that could be, what sin against us could be, uh, he's not saying go gossip about it to somebody else. He's not saying go tell the pastor. Like, like, like here's the thing. If you come to me and say, I want you to know, you know, Shine, because he, he, he's going to come up and pray in a minute, right? Shine is sinning, right? My first question is going to be, have you talked to him? Have you talked to him? Because I'm not going to talk to him if you haven't talked to him. Right? That's just the way it works. And if you tell me, no, I haven't, I'm going to say, well, you're sinning. <laughs> you're sinning. You're gossiping. And you are not doing what the Bible said. Right? You are not holding that relationship accountable personally. You go talk to that person. And if it doesn't end well, then you come talk to me. Or go talk to somebody else, actually. Right? We'll see that in a minute. Um, um, and, and this is really how we go after the lost sheep, right? This is, this is what it means to go after that lost brother or sister um, where they are at risk of drifting off into sin. And we want to bring them back to a place of good or right relationships in the community uh, because that's what community is. Community is about relationships with each other that are built around uh, the gospel and what Christ has done for us and our relationship with each other because of Jesus. Um, so we're commanded to, 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 to confront them. We're, we're commanded uh, for, for uh, anyone who sinned against us, it says. I, I, um, it is possible, and there's some debate, there, there's a textual problem with this verse. It could also say, and in some translations it may actually say, uh, if a person sins, period. Uh, but I'm going to go with, uh, for several reasons, the sins against us. Because the focus is relationships within the community. So what he's really talking about is here is when somebody has hurt me personally, they have done something and sinned against me personally, or they've sinned in a way that I, I am directly impacted or affected. 
Right, so it's not necessarily just talking here about the little group of old ladies who are, you know, spying out everybody in the church and uh, who are looking for everybody to mess up. Right? Uh, now, there may be a place for church discipline where uh, something like that may happen, but what he's talking about here is it's in the context of your relationship with another member of the body and they have sinned against you. Right? I think that's what he's saying here. Um, uh, something that has impacted us personally, and we have first-hand uh, interaction with that. So what sins do we confront? Well, it's important to talk about what's, what he's not saying here. Okay, sin is not immaturity. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't confront people about their immaturity, and if people are doing things that are um, just immature, maybe you do need to talk to them. But uh, immaturity is not necessarily sin, Okay. Remember, the context here is the wandering sheep. There's somebody who's wandering off uh, and at risk of being lost. Uh, sin is not theological differences. Now, again, there's a place for correcting people's theology, but it's not at the level of sin. Right? I don't rebuke somebody because their, sin, their, 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 sin, their theology is different than mine. Like, I love it when I share and teach something and people come up afterwards and say, that's not biblical. Well, it may not be biblical to you, but I actually happen to think it is biblical, right? Um, so, so we may disagree about theology, but that, that's not necessarily sin. Right? It's not, right? um, it, sin is not having different opinions. Uh, like if somebody's not your political group, right? it doesn't mean that they're sinners. But it's amazing how sometimes that gets lumped together and confused, right? Sin is not what others do that annoys us. Okay, be clear on that. People will do things that annoy and bother you, but not everything that's annoying is necessarily sin. And Paul in Scripture talks a lot about enduring with one another, forbearing with one another, putting up with one another. Right, so I'm not talking here about, like, Jesus is not saying every time somebody irritates you a little bit, that uh, you're so small and petty and so consumed with how you feel, because honestly, maybe it's your problem, right? Maybe you're the one who's sinning against your brother because you're not extending grace and patience and love. Right? So, so he's not talking here about every little irritating thing um, or every little flaw or imperfection in our brothers and sisters, right? He's already talked earlier about not being judgmental, but not having the supercritical spirit where we're pulling out every fault and flaw. That is not what he's talking about here, right? The sin here uh, is serious sin. It's somebody who's at risk from wandering from the flock. Uh, and it's the idea that they've done something to really hurt us or in some way significantly harm our relationship with them. Or... They are, because of the sin they're involved with, they're at risk of, of damaging their whole relationship with the community. Right? So they're stepping into serious immorality. They, they're making life choices that are uh, very destructive for themselves and for others. Um, they are doing things that are, that are damaging and that are probably wrecking their life and certainly wrecking relationships. Right? Um, and so we're to, we're, to, we're to confront them. And we're to do it alone. So here, here's where we all you know, almost always fail. You know, we really don't take that first step of going to that person one-on-one and, and, and having this conversation. Right? And, and so 
We can't do the other steps because we never do the first one. But Jesus says you must do this, right? It is how you shepherd them back uh, to right relationship in the community. Uh, but he says if you go to them and you talk to them and they, there's true reconciliation, they, they admit their mistake, they confess it as sin, and they repent and they seek forgiveness. Uh, we'll see in the next passage, we are always to extend forgiveness. Right? Even if they've done it to us a thousand times, we are to extend grace and forgiveness. Right? We have gained back our brother or sister. Right? We have restored and gained back that relationship. But what if they don't? What if they say, you know, you're, you're wrong. Like, I didn't say that or I didn't do that or you're misunderstanding. Uh, well, then you, you bring along one or two witnesses. Uh, now, this could be the leaders of the church, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't say call the pastor or the elders. It says pick any two people who are fellow brothers or sisters, preferably people who are godly, uh, preferably people who are already in some kind of relationship and maybe who know the situation. Uh, and their role is to be witnesses. And so what they do, and this is kind of a safety net, uh, they, they hear both sides of the story. And they uh, are to establish the charges. Right? So they may listen, and your two witnesses may listen, and they may actually say, you know, I think you're wrong. I think, I think you missed something here. right? Because I don't think this person actually sinned against you. Um, and and what, what, what happens often, and I've been in cases like this, usually what happens when, when actually it's not, it's not what people think it is, it's because they are, they are stepping into something that they're not personally involved with. Right? They heard or they think they saw this person treat that person, say something to that person, you know, and so they want to be the, the church police and they want, to, they want to confront that person. You shouldn't have talked to that person that way. See? It wasn't about them personally. And, and I've been in cases where they were wrong. They were just plain wrong. And so the witnesses help keep a level of, of, of balance, right? That we can't just accuse without, uh, without, without fairness, right? Um, uh, and then if, if, if they still uh, don't accept it, like, and, and the witnesses confirm that this is true, that the accusations are right, uh, then you bring it to the whole church, the whole community, uh, this may or may not involve, it would probably at some level involve the leaders of the church. Um, but he says at this level, if they still refuse, you are to treat them like Gentiles or tax collectors. Uh, this sounds a little harsh, but Matthew's audience was Jewish, and they knew what this meant. Uh, in a Jewish community, you were not allowed fellowship with Gentiles or tax collectors. What Jesus is saying here is that if you cross that line and refuse to repent. You have sinned and you've been uh, called to account and that person refuses to repent. They refuse to acknowledge that they've done wrong. They refuse to seek uh, reconciliation and forgiveness. But the final step is you, uh, you break fellowship with them. Right? Uh, they are no longer a part of the community because their behavior is showing that they're one who is not really saved. That's kind of the, the, the end result. A person who's really in Christ, who's really uh, in the community because they believe Jesus, will accept 
their sin. They will be like a little child and be humble. And they will uh, welcome that kind of criticism and that kind of pointing out. They will be accountable. And if they're not, it's an indication that they really are not true followers of Christ. So therefore, they're not actually part of the community. He's not saying here that you don't love them anymore. He's not saying that you should be mean to them. It's just our relationship with that person is now changed. They're no longer a brother or sister who's part of the community. They are now a lost soul who needs saving. Right? So they can't be included in the life of the community of faith because they're not, they're not one of us. Right? Uh, so they are outside the community. And the level of fellowship is different. Right? So I'm not saying you never talk to that person, but there's no longer the opportunity for fellowship in, as, as, as a member of the community of faith. That that's, that's gone. Uh, that's no longer possible. Um, well, this is a very radical way of dealing with people and with sin. Um, like I said, I'm not sure we understand it. I'm not sure we always practice it very well. And uh, there's so much more that could be said, but, you know, lunch is coming up and we, we want to worship some. Uh, but let me just close with this last thought, okay, kind of tie it all together. And these are principles that we need to think through how we implement in our life every day. Like when people sin against us, how do we, how do we, how do we walk forward in that? Right. Well, Jesus uh, ends with these words. He says, um, "Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Um, at the core of this is the question, what gives us the right, what gives me the right, the right to point out another person's faults and sins? Like, who, who died and put me in charge? Who died and put you in charge, right? And a lot of us feel like, I don't have the right to do that. Like, who am I to, to go up to somebody and say, hey, I think you're sinning. You know, I think what you did is, is wrong, right? And in love, I, I want to confront you that you need to confess and repent that sin. And we feel like, I don't have authority to do that. Like, that's a preacher's job or a pastor's or the Pope or something. I don't know. Uh, it's not my job. Where, how, is it, how is this, where does this authority come from? Well, the authority certainly comes from God. God is the one who gives us this authority. And what he's saying here, he's saying, I'm telling you, if two or three of you, uh, 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 truly I say to you, if, if whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's a statement of giving you authority. And again, he's speaking to each believer, each little child. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You have been given by God this kind of authority. But, the, but there's a catch, right? This may make us feel like, well, I am pretty important. Well, actually, I individually am not. Because notice, notice what he says, yes. He says, wherever two of you are gathered and agree about anything. Right? Here's where the authority in the church lies. Authority in the church does not lie in the pastor by himself. 
Authority in the church does not lie in the elders by themselves. It does not uh, uh, reside in some bishop or cardinal or pope by himself. Sorry, pope, whoever is pet pope now, sorry. You don't have that authority by yourself. Right? The authority lies where? It lies in any place two or three are gathered. This is amazing, right? This is the community of faith we live in. God has given us his very authority to bind and loose, to declare guilt and innocence, if you will, to name and call out sin. Simply when any two believers gather together uh, in his name, and in his name means that we are seeking Jesus, right? We're doing it in his name with his, his purpose and his heart in mind. So two people come together in Jesus' name, and they're concerned about a wandering lost sheep. And in Jesus' name, they have authority to confront that person uh, and, and to pursue them and to expose sin in their life. And that person is accountable to them. right? We, we have this accountability because we do have authority over each other's lives. Right? But not just as individuals. Together, uh, or two or three are gathered in my name, prayerfully seeking God, right? It says, where two are gathered in my name uh, about anything they ask. So the picture is this. When we're we're dealing with somebody who's wandering and straying and we we come together with two or three people, it doesn't have to be the pastor or an elder, two brothers and sisters who are concerned about somebody who's struggling with sin. And we prayerfully in Jesus' name come together and we pray, God, we want to see this person brought back. Like we are concerned that they are about to drift down a very dangerous path. And we're taking responsibility. We want to know how to shepherd that person back. And we're coming together in Jesus' name, prayerfully seeking, Lord, help us know. Help us have a plan to to deal with this person, to talk with them, to love them back, to confront them. Right? Imagine if this is how the church really worked. Right? Just imagine if we had these kind of relationships. Right? Where it's not just a meeting on Sunday morning, but where we as the body of Christ living here in Chiang Mai really had the kind of relationships where we, we lived with this expectation of accountability. Right? And where I knew that if I mess up, like anybody who sees me, who's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, has the right to come confront me. Right? And when they do it lovingly and prayerfully, um, I need to respect the authority that God has given them. Right? Not because of their position of some leader, but because of their authority in Christ as the gathered people prayerfully seeking to restore a lost soul. Right? That's Jesus' picture here. And he says, he says for, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's the community we belong to. A place where even two people showing up together, right? Christ is in the midst of them. So with a group like this, is Christ in the midst of us? Yes, right? That's the church. Gathered people with Christ in the midst of them who are taking seriously the care for each other. This is not about judging. It's about caring for each other. 
and making sure we all stay You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.